Well, if you would, open up your Bibles, and we're going to look in Ephesians chapter 3 as we're moving through this sermon series where we look at our identity in Christ. If you are here last week, you, would, you remember that Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 was printed in your bulletin, and the bulletin went to press before I actually decided only to preach on the first six verses. Um, today we're going to finish up looking at um, verses 7 through 13. And, and last week we saw that God's grace has this power to make us into stewards or caretakers of the gospel. This week, in a similar note, though, we see that, that God's grace empowers us to be people who are servants, who champion the gospel of God's grace. In other words, the gospel isn't just for us to hold on to, it's for us to give to the world. Now, Perhaps that causes some doubt or fear in you when you hear such things. But be cheered. Be cheered by the gospel because God's grace empowers us for this daunting task. Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this word that helps us understand your wisdom and your plan and your goodness and your grace. We thank you that your grace does give us power, power to understand our calling, power to be enabled to to live for you and for your glory. We pray that your spirit would, in this very hour, Remind us of your greatness and your goodness. Remind us of our calling. That it would encourage us here as we gather as your people, we pray. Amen. You know, some of my favorite classes in seminary were church history classes. It's in these classes where I heard great stories of men and women who were quite the champions for, for the gospel. Went out into the world and brought God's message of grace throughout all the generations. One such uh, person is a man named Severinus. Severinus was the, is considered the patron saint of, of Austria, though he wasn't born in Austria. Most likely he was born in North Africa. He was hungry for God, and he gave away all of his wealth and became a hermit. But then his conscience wouldn't let him remain in seclusion. You see, people needed the gospel. And so, one day, after the death of Attila the Hun, who was ravaging through Middle Europe, um, he moved to an area, uh, Noricom, near Vienna. 
and Atollah Hun's forces had been divided into small bands of raiding parties and armies that were causing havoc in Middle Europe. But despite this situation, Severinus sought to turn men and women to Christ. But by and large, his message was rejected. And yet he remained there and served for many years. One thing he cautioned the people in Vienna about was that they were going to be attacked someday, that they needed to prepare themselves. They didn't listen, and sure enough, Vienna was attacked. He didn't turn away from the people. Rather, he recommitted to minister to them. He set about to provide relief for the starving city. He he, he coaxed a a rich widow to, to give up her hordes of food so that the people in Vienna could be fed. And he called people to repentance. And it's almost as if the ice in the river Danube could hear their cries of mercy because the ice began to crack and the waterways were opened and relief was able to be brought to the city. And Severinus used this as an opportunity to build up the defenses of the cities. And he went out and he negotiated with the barbarians that they would but turn away, and they did. Severinus remained there for many years. Afterwards, he used his Power. He used his, uh, his calling to, to champion the gospel, to, to set the captives who were captivated, to bring them back, to bring release for the captives. He provided relief for the poor, and he actually built churches as the gospel was advancing. And preferring this simple lifestyle, he even rejected an offer for him to be made bishop. And then he died, somewhat old, old age, and on January 8th, 482. Yeah, there's no one before that. 482. He had a disease called pleurisy. I'm not even pronouncing that right. But it's a disease that affects the, the sacs around one's lungs. It makes it very difficult and painful to breathe. He died of this disease. And it's remarked that on his deathbed, he sang this psalm. Let everything that has breath. Praise the Lord. God's grace turned Severinus into a champion of the gospel for the people of Vienna. And Paul says in this passage that God's grace has a similar effect upon you and upon me. See, there's great power in God's grace. Power for us to live as champions of the gospel into our communities. Paul speaks of this in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. God's grace that Paul is referring to here, it isn't a saving grace, though Paul has received God's saving grace, and so too you and me if you are in Christ. This is an enabling grace. God's grace enables us for the work of the ministry. He uses the word minister here. He's a minister of the gospel. It's the Greek word diakonos. That's a word that means um, to serve or, or to help. It's where we get the word deacon. Deacons help. They serve. They minister in the church. And it's true that Paul has a unique calling to be a minister of the gospel, right? 
but so too each of us. We are called to be servants of the gospel of grace. That's what we see in this passage. And in doing so, we, we become champions of the gospel of grace. Not champions as in wearing a big ring that says we won the Super Bowl, but champions as a verb. It's something we do. We go out and champion the cause of the gospel. Paul did it in his day. Severinus did it in his day. And we are called to do it in our day as well. That's possible. Some of you are saying, you're thinking, wow, Mark, that sounds a lot like evangelism. We don't like that word evangelism, do we? You know, um, non-Christians will say things like, you know, that's fine. Believe what you want to believe. But, you know, don't come after me with that. All right. George Carlin summed it up with these words. Here's what he said. He's a comedian. He said, religion is like a pair of shoes. Find one that fits for you, but don't make me wear your shoes. Sounds kind of witty and and clever and and kind of laugh at that. But it's Carlin's analogy that doesn't fit. How so? Well, for for Carlin, the the problem that, that religion seeks to address is the problem that we as human beings need shoes. But that's not the problem that the gospel addresses. The gospel addresses a need that we all have. But it's not a need for shoes. It's, it's an, it, it comes from the, uh, the fact that, that all feet stink. That's what the gospel addresses. That's what Paul has been communicating in his letter. He's saying all humanity is separated from God by our sin. It matters not how big or small your feet are. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. It doesn't matter who. doesn't matter what you believe. You need the gift of God's grace. Everyone needs Christ. Now, most of us here are Christians, but isn't it true we can often feel intimidated? We can lack confidence. We can feel powerless in this call to champion the gospel. And isn't it not also true we can kind of buy into Carlin's uh, notion that, that the gospel is and faith is, is just a private matter? What we see this morning is that God's grace empowers us to be champions of the gospel. We're going to look at four things in our passage. And yes, they all begin with peace. We're going to, uh, we're going to look at the privilege, the proclamation, the purpose, and the perseverance. First, the privilege. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear the word privilege? Um, typically, it's kind of a, kind of a negative thing. We, we think of someone who has a privileged life, and typically, what do they do with it? They just waste it on themselves, right? Um, so we kind of have a, a twofold, kind of a... a, a um, compound reaction. Part of us were envious. We're like, we would like to be privileged. You know, we would like to, to be born in a certain estate, have, to, to have certain status that was, we didn't work for. It was just given to us. And yet we are also disparaging because we realize, yeah, people typically who have um, great privilege typically hoard it for themselves. But my hope here this morning isn't to, is, is, is that we can see that there, that there is a, that, that, that there is um, a proper way to look at privilege, right? When someone is, when we experience privilege, it's not to be wasted. If we've been privileged, we are to use our privilege to bless others. And that's what I want us to see here this morning. And since the believer has been blessed and privileged by God's grace, we are to bless others with this gospel of grace. Paul speaks of this in in verse 8, the very first half of verse 8. 
He says, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. You know, I'm so glad Paul put that middle phrase in there. I'm so glad he didn't just say, to me, this grace was given. No, you see what he has there? He says, though I'm the very least of the saints, to me, this grace was given. Now, remember, don't get hung up on this word saints. A saint is someone who's been set apart, who's been made holy by God, uh, for God and his purposes. All Christians are saints. It's God's work, not ours. He sets us aside as his. Uh, he calls us saints. We are saints. Okay? It's not something you earn by being a really, really good Christian. All right? Paul considers himself to be the very least of us all. Now, he's not speaking here with false humility. He's not being self-deprecatious. No, Paul is speaking out of a true humility. He has a genuine understanding of his unworthiness and of Christ's overflowing grace towards him. Paul considers himself the very least of the saints. Now, this phrase, very least, is, is interesting. Commentators say here that Paul actually invented his own word. He's, 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 he's created a new form of, a, of an adjective. He, he has now an adjective that is, that is a comparative of a superlative to which we say, I don't remember that in my grammar class. Well, let me, let me describe it to you here. Say we're to be at a dinner party and I've got my mouth half full of uh, chocolate cake. And I were to say to you, um, this flourless chocolate cake is unrivaled. I would be saying to you, according to my opinion, and I have been known to be found with chocolate cake, uh, a plate of chocolate cake. Um, I would be saying to you that there is no greater chocolate cake than this one, right? Now, if I were to say to you, this flourless chocolate cake is very unrivaled. <laughs> you, you scratch your head and you go, no, no, you're, you're using the comparative with the superlative. Our superlatives don't need comparatives, right? That just doesn't make sense. But Paul here uses the superlative least. He says, I'm the least of the saints. And then he puts the comparative very before it. It's just he's saying, I am less than the least. Or I am the leaster. Of all the Christians. Paul looks at his own life and he sees how unworthy he is to be the one who champions the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul used to be Saul. He's the one who rounded up the Gentile believers, rounded them up, some of them to be killed. Paul, Paul, is, Paul is saying, I have no right to have this privilege. And so to you and me, when we look at our own lives, we realize I have no right to have this privilege of being someone who champions the gospel in my community. We look at who we are, who we were, and even how we continue to be as followers of Christ. And we, we know that it's only by God's grace that we have this privilege. It's by God's power that we have this privilege. You know, the Christian comes to see that God calls us despite our sinful past and that God God commissions us despite our defects and despite our seeming disqualifications. 
You know, Christians often feel inadequate in sharing the gospel. I'm not smart enough. I'm not enough of of an extrovert. You know, I'm not well enough equipped. I feel inadequate, so I will sit on the sidelines. Know this, brothers and sisters. Feelings of inadequacy are not exemptions from our calling to be champions of the gospel. In fact, feelings of inadequacies are the prerequisite for evangelism. You should feel inadequate. None of us in our own strength are competent or powerful enough to fulfill the high calling that God has for us. And so if you feel inadequate, consider yourself off to a good start. For it's only when you know that you are limited that you will turn to God and and ask for the mercy and the grace and the power that we need to, to be champions of the gospel to those we love and care for. For those of us who profess faith in Christ, let us be reminded of this great privilege that God has given us, this privilege of grace. It isn't a privilege that we cling on to. It's a privilege that we're commissioned to bless others with. And whenever God presents you with a challenge in which to champion the gospel, remember that he graciously empowers us for that task. That's the privilege now for the proclamation. As champions of the gospel, we have a message to proclaim. Paul, in verse 8 and 9, the second half of verse 8 and 9, we see two things that, that make, this, make up this. Um, see if you can pick it up. He says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Let's start backwards. Let's start with verse 9. Our proclamation that we have is, is to be seen as a bringing of light to this world, of, of enlightenment to this dark world. Jesus said what? He says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 3, Jesus said this. He says, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and it does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, contrary to popular opinion, God has a plan. His plan is to send his son, the light, into the world, to enlighten the world, that that the world would be transformed by, by, by God's goodness and righteousness. And so the proclamation that we bring is a proclamation that brings enlightenment to a dark world. We point people to Christ, who is the light. And when we do so, we must not be surprised when people reject him and they reject us. Rather, we must continue on in in bringing this proclamation of Christ to a world that needs Christ, to people so that they may see their need of him and receive the grace that he has for them. Christian, do you see this calling upon your life? Do you, do you accept this calling to be a light bearer um, in this world? 
In addition to bringing light, Paul writes in verse 8 that we have a calling to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, now you hear this word preach and you go, you know, is, is Paul calling me to be preachy? I really don't want to be preachy. I mean, you know, I don't want to be a preachy person. Well, guess what? Uh, Paul is not calling you to, to preach in that negative sense. I'm sure we've all been on the receiving end of that and maybe, maybe we've done it ourselves. We've been really preachy with the gospel. But let me help you see more clearly what this calling to preach is. Um, the word gospel, our English word, is a translation of the Greek word, euangelion. You know what euangelion literally means? It means good news. We have, the gospel is good news. You're not giving somebody like Chip Beach, you know, I mean, you know, you're not giving them a deflated balloon with no, you know, I mean, that's not what we have. We have good news. And in verse 8, the, where Paul says to preach, you know what the Greek word is? Euangelizo. Yeah, from the same root as good news. It literally means to, to proclaim or share good news. This word to, to preach means that, really, literally, that we are to good news other people with the good news. Let me explain this real simply. And I might be accused of being kind of juvenile in my explanation of things. But, Christian, you've been good newsed by the grace of God, so that you can good news other people with the good news of God's grace. And we need to know that this is beautiful. Beautiful in the eyes of God. In, in Romans chapter 10, Paul is talking about how, how important it is that people go and, and, and preach the message of Christ and salvation. And then, and then he quotes from Isaiah 52, and, he's, and he says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's that same Greek word. How beautiful are your feet when you preach the good news. There is no other, there's no greater good news than the gospel. Within the hope of the gospel lies all of the longings of humanity that can be met in Christ Jesus. The world is desperate for the gospel. And you and I are ordained as champions of this good news. Now, you may still be wondering just how good news the good news is. Let's look at Paul's words for a little more detail. Paul says he preaches, or good news is the Gentiles, about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, when Paul says that he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ, is, is he saying that, good luck, good luck trying to find Jesus, good luck finding any riches there, you know, is that, is that what he's saying? No. Another way to translate that Greek word is, is the word inexhaustible. As you search the riches of Christ, you will find that the treasure you are mining can never be fully extracted. Why? Because there's too much there. Christian, 
Christian, if you knew of a supermarket that freely gave all the food you could ever eat, and you knew that their resources were inexhaustible, would you not tell a friend? Of course you would. The gospel is an invitation that you bring to your friends for them to feed on the inexhaustible riches of Jesus Christ. See, there's a wealth in Christ that he alone possesses. And it's this wealth that we herald to people in our community. Jesus spoke about his riches. You can read through the Gospel of John. It's a little exercise for you. Here's how he described himself and his riches. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see why Paul describes this as, as the unsearchable riches of Christ? Christ never says to you, you've had enough grace for today. Why don't you come back tomorrow? The riches of Christ are inexhaustible. And check this out. The gospel invites you to exhaust the inexhaustible. Think about that. It's a paradox of our faith. We are called to exhaust the inexhaustible. And and as we preach Christ, we invite people into that reality themselves. That's our calling. Our calling is to be champions of the gospel is, is, is that as we mine the riches of Christ's grace towards us, we invite our friends and family and co-workers and, and people in our community, even total strangers, to come and to experience, to mine the depths, to feed upon Christ, the one, the one who, whose grace and mercy is inexhaustible. When evangelism is described that way, it's attractive. It? Now for the purpose. Verse 10 begins with the purpose clause. So that. Right? I hope I've been training you guys how to read your Bibles and look for various clues into how to interpret things. Uh, we are to proclaim the good news so that through us, God's glorious wisdom would be seen by all on earth and in, in heaven. God's plan, his purpose is that through the work of the church, through you and me, that, that God's glory would be seen on earth. Now, some of you might be thinking, wow, God, God sure seems to be wrapped up in his own glory. Really? I mean, is God all about his, his own glory? And uh, he's fascinated by his own glory? That just doesn't, that just doesn't sound right. 
But check this out. If there is no other God than God, and that's a big F for some people, and, and if God is infinite in wisdom and power and might and love, in other words, if God is infinite in glory, then if God is not delighting in his own glory, then there is some other glory other than God that he has his eyes upon. And if God has his eyes upon any other glory than his own glory, then there is some other glory greater than his. And there is a glory that is greater than God. And God is not God. So God is right to seek his own glory and to put it on display. And the weird thing is, is that he does it through us. The least of the leasters. He displays his glory. He says, verse 10, so that through the church, the church? Really, the church. Yeah, the church. You and me. Sinners saved by God's grace. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The manifold wisdom, that's his glorious wisdom. We probably don't use that phrase. Man, when was the last time you used manifold wisdom in a sentence? Probably, probably haven't. Um, the word manifold is, is a Greek word that, that is used to describe uh, like multicolored cloaks or the various hues of a garland of flowers. All right. Um, as, as the gospel works through us, God's multifaceted, glorious wisdom is made known on earth, but also in the heavenly realms. See, just as the, the, just as the riches of Christ are inexhaustible, so too is God's manifold glory or wisdom infinitely captivating. I don't know how captivated you are by God's manifold glory. Glory. But what we're seeing here is that the authorities in heaven sure are excited about it. Did you see that? Paul says that the glorious wisdom is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Who are these rulers and authorities? Some say they're angels. That's good. Some say demons. That's, you see it in Ephesians 6. Same, same wording. Some say both. I go with both. <laughs> Angels and demons in the heavenly realms are witnessing God's manifold glory unfold on earth. We don't know a whole lot about angels or demons. The Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot. We do know that they're created beings. Uh, and as created beings, they're limited in many things, including knowledge and wisdom. Um, we know that some angels... Um, fell from God's glory. They wanted glory for themselves and they, and they fell from God's glory, including who we call Satan, the ringleader of the demons. Both angels and demons have been watching God's plan unfold throughout all of the ages. They, they saw um, how, how way back in, in, before time began, God, God had this thought to create and he created angels and some of them fell. And then he, God created the earth and, and they saw all the way back in the, in the very beginning how, how mankind turned and fell um, from God's grace. And, and so all this time, the angels and, and demons are, are wondering, how is God going to resolve this problem? How is God going to fix this thing? How is he going to remedy it? You ever watch someone play chess? I'm not a great chess player, but I've watched people play chess before, and they get down to, you know, three or four pieces left, and 
And there appears to be no move left to save the day. And then, though, out of what appears to be sheer genius, the bishop slides and captures the queen. Paul is saying something far greater than that took place in heaven itself. See, the angels and demons alike saw the predicament that God appeared to be in. It appeared to be as if he had no move left on the chess table. What are you talking about? Well, imagine the conversation. (laughs) They would would say, Almighty God, look look how stuck you are. You are infinite in love. You love man who has been made in your image. You cannot act in any way that diminishes your love. You cannot turn your back on fallen humanity. But then they say, but you're also infinite in justice. You cannot simply overlook sin as if it never happened. Humans do that, but you cannot. You cannot act in a way that diminishes your justice. You cannot not be just. And you have this, this infinite power against this infinite immovable object dilemma. And in their wisdom, the angels and demons could not figure out a way to remedy this. It was cat's game in the heavenly realms. That is, until God made a move. And a child was born. The heavens opened. The sun smiled at the Father and he departed. The angel said, Hallelujah, what are you doing? Can we see more? The demon said, What's our next move? Satan tried to have all the baby boys killed and he did in, in Israel. Jesus escaped. Satan sought to make a move upon Christ after he, was, after he was sent out into the wilderness. He tempted Jesus for 40 days. Perhaps he thought he was going to have success. Why? He's thinking, I got that first Adam. It was so easy, so easy to get human beings to deny God, their maker, and seek their own glory. Jesus rebuffed him. He thought, I'll just have this, I'll have this Christ killed. That'll, that'll end the game. He moved so that Christ would be taken to the cross. And what no doubt to, to demonic wisdom was the thought that this will win this for me. I will kill the Son of God. And, and Christ went to the cross. But understand this. It's the cross where it is all reconciled. God's infinite love for humanity and God's infinite justice. He can't turn a blind eye to our sin. Instead of pouring his wrath on us, he poured it on his son, who took it every last drop. So that we, so that this, this dilemma is reconciled. And when that happened, all of heaven went, oh my gosh, I never saw that coming. Whoever would have thought of that? Only God in his manifold wisdom could think of such a thing as the cross to remedy our condition. My friends, we as the church, as we live together, as we live out this gospel of grace, it's as if heaven is, and and people on earth are saying, look at them, the least of the leasters. Look at how they walk with such grace and power. Look at how transformed they are. Look at the love and the justice and the mercy. 
They don't they aren't ones who dismiss sin as if it never happened. And yet there's something captivating by these Christians. They say sin is sin. And yet they point me to where it can be relieved. Christian, I hope you open your eyes to this reality. In the heavenly realms, you are on display as a part of this body. God is working in and through us. The church. Through the church, God's manifold wisdom is being displayed. Now for the perseverance. No matter how captivated you are by God's grace, you can, as Paul says here, lose heart. When it comes to championing the good news, we can grow weary, we can grow timid. And, and Paul here shows us how we are to persevere in this difficult task, and we persevere through the power of God's grace. It's the same grace that we saw in chapter 7 that, that powerfully privileges us with this, this ministry of championing the gospel in the midst of, of all this suffering of the gospel. There is power, suffering for the gospel, there is, there is power to us. Verse 13, we read, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, remember, Paul is in prison when he's writing this. He's in prison in Rome. Why is he there? He's in prison because he's been championing this gospel to the Gentiles. And he's been rejected by many, and he's sent to Rome to stand at his defense. He's suffering as he writes. And guess what? Whenever we take the message of the gospel, a beautiful message to us, but wherever we take that message, there's a great possibility. In fact, no, there's a high probability that we will suffer as a result of bringing this message. Christians in, in China are in prison for simply handing out Bibles. Christians in Muslim countries, while they are worshiping, are being slaughtered. And certainly us as well, but at a far greater, lesser degree, whenever we bring this message of the gospel, there's a possibility for suffering. You speak Christ to somebody and they don't really say anything. They're kind of quiet. But in their mind, their eyes are rolling and they're going, oh, you're one of them. Huh? <laughs> you believe that foolishness. Wow. I never saw it coming. All right. Well, now I've got to put you in a new category. Going to start relating to you differently. Guess I can't gossip around you anymore. Others will say things to your face. They will revile you to your face for simply saying you need a savior. Are you to stop? No, you're not to lose heart as we suffer for the gospel. We must good news others even when they revile our Savior. The church is full of ex-revilers. I should know. I was one of them. Christ knows how hard it is to bring light into a dark world, and yet he calls us to follow in his steps. And as we suffer for Christ, what does he do? He gives us himself in the midst of it. I think many Christians miss out on Christ because he is not, he, they are not putting themselves in, in opportunities to where they find Christ in the midst of their suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul spoke of this in his letter to the Philippians. He says, I want to know Christ. 
And he talks about, I'm going to find him in, in my suffering. Because it's in the suffering that I find the power of Christ's resurrection lived out in me. In verse 12, Paul writes, In whom? That's in Christ. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Because as Christians, we're united to Christ. We have a boldness of a confidence of, of coming to Christ. It reminds me a little bit about a little bit of that passage in, in Hebrews chapter four. You know, the one beginning in verse 14, where he writes, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We are able to persevere in this calling to champion the gospel because Christ is present with us as we do that. In Matthew 28, the the very end, as Jesus is risen from the dead and he's sending his disciples in what we know is the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And his last words are what? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's Christ's promise to his church, his bride, whom he loves, to be with us. So if you find yourself suffering as you champion this gospel message, be reminded that that we have access. Christ is present with us. And we turn to him for his mercy and his grace. All right, we've seen this morning that we're to be champions of the gospel. All right, remember, we've been good news by the good news so that we can be good newsers to others of this gospel of grace. We are to champion the gospel because the world desperately needs the gospel. This is our privilege. It's not a privilege for us to cling and to hold on for ourselves, but it's a privilege um, that, that, that we don't deserve. And yet God in his grace empowers us for this calling. As we come to this Lord's table here, let us, let us be reminded of our, of our shared calling to champion this gospel message. Let us draw near to Christ and, and feed on, on him. Remember, he says, all who do shall never hunger. His riches are inexhaustible. And yet he invites us to exhaust the inexhaustible riches of his grace. Let's pray. Father, your word is just amazing. Your wisdom is manifold. I don't even know if manifold is is even a, a good enough word. Very manifold. The most manifold. Wisdom. It confounds the foolishness of this world. We're thankful that you are wise. We're thankful that you are holy. We're thankful that you are infinite in justice and infinite in love. And we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you opened up heaven and sent your son to take on flesh, that we may have life. This is good news. May it be good news to our souls today. May it be something that we treasure 
may be something that we champion. And may you fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit that we may be these people you've called us to be. Amen.